following podcast contains the views and opinions of individuals and does not represent the position of the United States Marine Corps, Department of Defense, or United States government. I mean, I guess we have to do the, the standard podcast intro, right? like editing note. Since we don't have the license for any actual music, I hope you enjoyed my acapella rendition of a smooth jazz podcast intro. Send booking requests to my agent. Welcome. I am Captain Jesse Schmidt, introducing you to Tactics and Operations, the podcast for the Marine Corps Tactics and Operations Group. I'd like to note that creativity is not a section on the Marine Corps Fit Rep, so please keep snarky comments about the podcast name to yourself. Top, you want to introduce yourself? All right. This is Master Arnold O'Donnell, um, Maneuver Instructor, Advanced Maneuver Warfare Course Deputy, and uh, I'm here to talk tactics, talk operations, and, and try to get this, this podcast off the ground from the top. Today we've got Major Nathaniel Jones, somebody that you absolutely know by name if you've had any interaction with McTogg in the last couple of years. This is the man who single-handedly stood up the Advanced Maneuver Warfare course, really building that from the ground up with the help of just a few other people. And that's now the course that is really McTogg's headliner. Major Jones, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Let's talk a little bit about who you are. Where, where have you been? Who are you? Where'd you come from? I came from El Paso, Texas. I've been in the Marine Corps for about 14 years and done, it's, a, it's like a phenomenally unphenomenal career, really. <laughs> like, so standard. Like, platoon commander, company XO, uh, company commander on the drill field, um, then a company commander out in the fleet. Uh, and then and then got sent to a place I'd never heard of, McTogg, uh, but it's been awesome. Okay. When you got to McTogg, did you have any idea that someday you would be designing a brand new course load for it? Nope. Um, but, you know, it's crazy what happens in three years, you know. All right. So, uh, as is tradition here on uh, Tactics and Operations, we got to start with our pre-combat inspection. Okay? So, we've got our five questions that we ask all of our guests. If you had uh, medically failed at MEPS, say, I don't know, you tore an ACL, something that healed up just fine, you were not a Marine today. If you had not commissioned in the Marine Corps, where would you be today? Uh, I saw this question ahead of time, and I have, I really had to think hard, like, what I would do. I, had, I thought I knew what I was doing before I joined the Marine Corps, um, but it would probably have to do something with teaching, just because now being at McTogg, I've discovered how fun teaching is. Um, and probably something with like physical fitness. So maybe a physical okay. fitness teacher. Right. Who knows? It, it probably would have been rough. Would you have like a big bushy beard? No. Okay. <laughs> okay. No. <laughs> uh, if you were forced to write a book, what book would that be? Um, it would be the application of, maneuver, of Marine Corps maneuver warfare. Because a lot of people, different organizations talk about maneuver warfare. But it would be... The application of Marine Corps maneuver warfare. All right, not Excellent. because this podcast is, yes. is based gonna, on that. That's a really good segue to the yeah. the purpose of the podcast. But you've jumped three questions ahead. So, top. If you had to talk about or mention something that you feel is widely overlooked or underrated, what what would that one thing be? I'd probably have three things. Three things that are overlooked or underrated. One is analog pictures because we're all digital now. So all our phones have thousands of pictures. I think my wife has 15,000 photos on her phone. Um, but like, there's nothing more unique about houses than what pictures they have up in their homes and why. 
-hmm. So like analog framed, what kind of frames they have in those pictures, I really, I'm really interested in that. I'm I'm gonna interrupt just momentarily. Have you seen those picture frames that are digital that you can, that'll they'll cycle through pictures. You just email the picture to like a certain account and they'll cycle through. What are your thoughts there? Uh, I don't like it. Not a fan. (laughs) Okay, so traditionalist. Got it. I will not have that. (laughs) Okay. Okay. What are the, the next two? Nation states. I think they're awesome. So like <laughs> Hong Kong. I didn't, I didn't see that one coming. Okay. Uh, like Singapore, Hong Kong. Like it, it's kind of it's kind of awesome to think that there's a city that's not a nation, um, but it's its own thing. And the more appropriate term might be city-states, but I'm not going to interrupt the man while he's on a roll. And having gone to those those nation states, they're they're pretty they're pretty wild. They're pretty cool. Okay. They're still they're they're like a huge and they're a huge part of the world economy too. But Absolutely. they're just cities like it's so like a return to Greek antiquity type thing. Yeah. Athens and Sparta rivalry. Yeah. Okay. We're like seeing old school history still alive. What is a small tradition you have within your your friends and family? With friends, it's uh, fantasy football. Like, okay. That's. Yeah, that's what keeps us connected a lot of the times, mm-hmm. fans football. With family, my family is uh, fairly new because so, so I've only been married for three years and I have two young ones, but it's walks. Like whenever the, we've had a, a hard day or a long day with the, the kids are being wild or work's been annoying or whatever, we're like my wife and I will look at each other and be like, we need to go on a walk. Um, I've found that particularly in this time of coronavirus and, yeah. and isolation, my wife and I have started taking a lot more walks. And sometimes it's just because the dog needs to go out, but getting some sunshine on you and, and being out in nature a little bit is is really refreshing. Yep. Agree. And finally, who is your fictional role model? Uh, so this one's kind of easy. Um, it's John Valjean from Les Miserables. Ooh, okay. Mm. Yep. He, uh, that dude to me is very inspiring. Um, he had multiple highs and lows in his life where he was at the top as a very rich merchant type guy and he was more giving than anyone anyone in the area that knew um, all the big players in France he was extremely giving and generous when he was rich and then when he was poor as a priest uh, he was like one of the most selfless people I've read um, about in any book so he I really, I, re- I think I read that book for the first time in 2012 when I was on the drill field. And it actually really helped me uh, shape like what a good person should be like while I was trying to figure out stuff on the drill field. I think that's the very first Les Miserables <laughs> drill field uh, yeah. connection that the Marine Corps has ever overtly made. Yeah. Uh, so hey, we've, we're establishing history here on the podcast in, in just our very first episode. But moving to kind of the point of this whole thing, right? Maneuver warfare. Everybody says, like, yeah, 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 we do maneuver warfare. We, that, that's a thing. Uh, Schwarzkopf and, and, and Marine Corps and maneuver warfare. Rah! What is it? All right? As somebody who's spent hours and hours and hours not only reading up on the doctrine, but trying to recreate it in some kind of way that you can teach to students, what is maneuver warfare? Everyone kind of rolls their eyes when they talk about, like, oh, well, this is maneuver warfare. You don't understand it. And I've only really started reading more about it as a result of seeing teaching. So I've like learned the lessons that maneuver warfare talks about in in the publications. I had to I learned it on my own, and then was like, this sounds vague, vaguely familiar. Some of these lessons we're learning, and then I go I go back and read MCP one, two, three, four, five, and six, and and it's like, oh, these things have been learned already. 
but to me, it's a mindset. First and foremost, it's a way of, it's a lifestyle. And that's where I see a lot of, I don't know if you can call it malpractice, but non-practice of maneuver warfare because a lot of times we see it as a way of operating or a way of um, developing mm-hmm. tactics, but it's a mindset, it's a lifestyle. So it's first and foremost to me, it's, a, it's that. Okay, so not necessarily even uh, just a military thing, right? but a lifestyle You could thing. use it in business, um, in your personal life, like how you raise kids um, with those themes, because I'm learning that right now, because I've got a two-year-old and a five-month-old. Would you say that you maneuver on them, or are they maneuvering on you? Do you know how that is? It's mostly, <laughs> them. Yeah, it's mostly them creating situations with which I can't cope. Uh, so, <laughs> so then I've got to... I got to react and adjust and adapt and be flexible. So, so with the understanding of there's multiple applications for maneuver warfare in life in general. Yeah. Um. To to explain it simply, what what are some of your go to examples in, in regards to that? So examples to me, the first one personally is my mom, because um, she we had she, there were eight children. Uh, we grew up in per capita the poorest area code in the country for uh, mean average average income annually ten thousand dollars a year was the average income in the area that we grew up with and we weren't very different my dad was a teacher um and but he tried to start his own tutoring center and my mom had her own business but you know they weren't super successful because they spent all their time they actually homeschooled um for most of my time growing up eight children so making a family function with on $10,000 a year average, teaching them at the same time um, with the logistics and, and all yeah. that stuff. That, Not easy. For so sure. yeah, I learned, oh, yeah. Uh, I learned indirectly maneuver warfare, a lifestyle um, through my mom. So they were almost forced to find right. the most effective way to do things right. just by the, the situation they found themselves in. Yep. Yeah, necessity being the mother of, of invention, I suppose. Mm-hmm. So what about like a military example in terms of if you had to give somebody a battle and say, no, look, yeah. look at this. Yeah. This is when they did some maneuver warfare. Yeah. Uh, what's your mental model there? Even greater than a battle because to me it incorporates all the aspects of military or national power, all the dime um, attributes. Uh, Queen Elizabeth I uh, in the late 1500s mm-hmm. uh, completely outcycled the Spanish um, for the last half of that century. Um, who were the greatest country on the planet at that time? Had they were the ones obviously who developed the North American and South American Empire. Right. Um, she, because they were underdogs, maneuver warfare always starts when someone is an underdog. Mm, right. The, the, the true practitioners are like my, my parents. They were society underdogs. The American revolutionists were underdogs. The Vietnamese in Vietnam were underdogs. The Taliban in Afghanistan right now are underdogs. She knew she couldn't compete with the Spanish uh, militarily. All her advisors were saying raise taxes, raise a great land army, land them in the lowlands of Europe and fight the Spanish on the mainland of Europe. And she looked out over the over the landscape, oriented on the situation, said, no, I'm not gonna raise taxes on my people. I see the impact it has on 
the France and Spain who were paying high taxes at the time. So she said, I'm not going to do that. So she hired a merchant by the name of, uh, what was his name? Help me out here. Sir Francis Drake. Uh, Sir Francis Drake. Nailed it. Uh, this may sound familiar today. She, she hired a mercenary uh, to loot and raid the Spanish uh, logistics ships coming back from the Americas loaded down with spices and gold and stuff. So she started hitting their, their supply lines and she could wipe her hands of that because they weren't identified as English. Right. So if any of Francis Drake's ships were captured, they could just say, yeah, they're, we're pirates. We don't work for anyone. It's exactly what we're seeing today in Syria. She actually delayed the development of the Spanish Armada by about a decade and a half. Wow. Then Spain finally was able to bring the Armada online, obviously to invade England. Mm -hmm. So instead, she developed a, a fleet of fast, uh, cheap ships um, to draw the, the Spanish into you know, the rough English waters um, and then get them to pursue the English fleet to the north. And obviously, we all know what happened there with the Spanish losing 30, almost 30% 30 of their ships. Hundreds of men, with the British only losing one ship, mm -hmm. completely outcycled the Spaniards, and this that led to by the end of the 15th century, Spain on the decline and Britain on the rise, completely by non-traditional, indirect, not direct tactics. But taking the greatest strength of the Spanish, right. that that armada, mm -hmm. and completely undermining it so right. that that strength is in now in fact a weakness for yeah. them. All by the way, by a woman who hadn't no military training um, and went against the grain of all of her SMEs mm -hmm. and all her experts. Uh, it's a really interesting study in, in some people who are just kind of intuitive maneuverists, I suppose. Intuitively, they can sense uh, weaknesses and, and how to strategize yeah. around them. Really good instincts. If you think that was unorthodox, wait until you hear his take on Kim Kardashian. But I'm getting ahead of myself. If you're listening to this podcast, I'm going to hazard just the roughest guess that you've probably read MCDP1 at some point in your life. Uh, and Major Jones, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, you have flipped through that book once or twice? Yes, correct. Yeah, that's correct? Okay. Recently, uh, too, a lot of guys, if you ask, I, I would estimate that if you ask mo most officers and staff and COs in the Marine Corps when the last time, just offline, not not under pressure or in front of senior senior officers, when was the last time you looked through MCP one It would probably be months or years. I mean, I know up until I showed up at McTogg at a schoolhouse that, you know, taught doctrinal underpinnings of maneuver warfare, I hadn't read it since TBS. Right. Absolutely. Tom? Yeah, before before coming to McTogg, the last time I probably picked up MCDP-1 was when I first got promoted to gunnery sergeant mm -hmm. and worked with my company commander to develop a, a PME for yeah. the Marines. And I got familiar with it right. um, as I was assisting with, with, the, with the corporal's course and all that. But, but other than that, yeah, yes. pro 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 probably not, not as much as I should have. Now that you've kind of re-examined it and gotten much more familiar with it in the development of, of the Advanced Maneuver Warfare course, or AMWIC, what part really stood out to you? There's two parts. The first part is in the forward by General Krulak in MCP-1. He says, this philosophy, this mindset, is what distinguishes the Marine Corps. This is what makes us different. Not systems, not our EO Globe and Anchor, but this mindset, this mentality is what distinguishes us 
as Marines. And I don't think a lot of Marines appreciate that. Distinguishes us from yes. the other branches or yeah. other militaries or yeah. just every, anyone. Every, as This is what should make us unique as Marines. Mm -hmm. But if you ask a Marine, most Marines today, especially officers and staff and SEALs, what distinguishes us as Marines? You know, they would say, like, can-do attitude, gung-ho, our haircuts, um, you know. Our they, PFT is three miles. Yeah, or if we don't run, I mean, they, they can <laughs> run a PFT. But, yeah, the General Krulak, the first on page zero says, this is what distinguishes us as a force, and it is a mindset, it is a philosophy, not just a way of conducting operations or tactics. And that right there is like, wow, that says it all. So that's the first one. And then page 56 and 57 are two of the ones that we kind of quote a lot, or you hear paraphrasing of it a lot, and that is, don't have a zero defects mentality, we need to be okay with struggle or failure. But a lot of us don't talk about why. why why do we not need to have a zero defects mentality? And it goes on to say later in the page, it is in order to instill boldness and initiative in the lowest echelons of leadership possible. Our fire team leaders, squad leaders, and platoon commanders need to have boldness and initiative infused in them from the day one of their leadership building. That is why we need, we need to encourage mistakes in pursuit of boldness and initiative, not because we, we we know the first part. Oh, we we need to not have a zero defects mentality, but why? In order to encourage boldness and initiative in our young leaders. And this is something that I know I've struggled with in doctrine: is that it's so simple, right? Don't have a zero defects mentality. It sounds great, of course, and I lock that away in my head and I say, of course, I will not have a zero defect mentality. But it's so hard to do that in practice. Yeah. As someone who was a company commander, uh, was a platoon commander, I am sure you have had subordinates screw up. Why is it that it is so hard to practice that when I think every Marine, upon hearing that statement, would immediately agree? Yeah. What, what's that tension like? Well, if when we make a mistake, we feel like we're being evaluated based on how, how many mistakes we make or the lack of mistakes. Our PECLs in service level exercises say at the high end of performance, flawless or perfect execution. We are trained to not make mistakes. If you make a mistake or if it's not perfect, then you are you are not mm -hmm. at the top of leadership. Right. And it goes against the essence of war where it's, it's full of friction, confusion, uncertainty. Mistakes are like the sky being blue or the grass being green in combat and in right. warfare. So to say that they had flawless or perfect execution is to deny the nature of war, which MCP one talks about a lot. So we're, it's in our training. Like we literally say to be good, you need to be flawless or perfect, which is so contradictory to warfare and our philosophy. What do you feel is our biggest challenge at, at helping develop that, that mindset? Cause as you said earlier, regards to the new warfare, it's a mindset. The biggest challenge, one, is getting that language out of our training. Mm -hmm. General Mullen just released uh, the vision and strategy of TCOM. It's like a seven-page document, and I was really grateful that in upfront, I immediately went to his first words. Does he mention our philosophy? He does. He talks about instilling maneuver warfare, the warfighting philosophy in training, and I was really grateful for that. But how? How is that? Well, one, we need to get rid of the language in because Marines will always orient on how what is the standard 
what standard am I being evaluated by in this training I'm doing? ITX, McCree, squat attack, platoon attack. They always go to the standard. How do, so how do I get a perfect score? ELOs, TLOs, et cetera. We need to get that language out of our training and go to MCDP-1. What does MCDP-1 say about preparing for war and training? It says we should reward boldness and initiative and enthusiasm. So, hey, why did you make that decision? Why did you make that mistake? Oh, I, I saw this gap in the enemy and I pursued it. And yeah, we made this miscalculation. We didn't, we did X instead of Y, but it's like, hey man, you're on the right track. You, in the pursuit of boldness initiative orienting on the enemy, you made those mistakes. Like, understandable, good, you learned from it. But what we see in training and the language in our assessments is those who are just methodical, deliberate, and safe and avoid most risk are the ones who are rewarded the most. That's our biggest challenge. How do we change that paradigm? What it goes back to is they're not reading our, they're not abiding by or reading our philosophy because it's it doesn't say those things. Mm -hmm. So we're basically just a, ignoring what Krulak says distinguishes the, the Marine Corps um, from everything else. Top, what do you think the enlisted community and that, that tension between making sure that all the ducks are in a row, right? Like that is what we have senior enlisted for, right? Is making sure all the things are right. Making sure everybody's in the right place at the right time. Making sure that everything goes off without a hitch. Like that is what we rely on our staff NCOs for. But what Major Jones is saying is that that's not necessarily what success is predicated on. The, the senior enlisted community is responsible for, for the culture of the unit. And creating a culture where we critique failure in a manner where we learn and get better as opposed to, to coming down hard on the individual, um, that, that comes down to, you know, we talk about it all the time, but, but the personal relations with those staff, amongst those staff NCOs, amongst units, and then down, down to the subordinates. It's creating a culture and a mindset. Without that culture being established, it, it's, it's not going to happen people are going to use the language they're going to refer to that that hard peckle and they're either going to do mastery or non-mastery and move on so it's the responsibility is on the senior enlisted to to cultivate that atmosphere to be able to be able to train and get after that mindset yeah that's a really good point i didn't consider it, it really is it's a cultural mind mind shift of, of how hey this problem happened this mistake happened the fact that it occurred is less important than the why. Right. What failed here? Who? Why decision did we make yeah. that allowed this to happen? Um, Could I say one other page that... Sir, you can say I, whatever <laughs> you would like. Because in the editing process, I can take out or add whatever I want to. You know, once I actually figure out how to do that. So there's one other page that really, uh, right now, is meaningful to me. Um, and that's the very next page after... It talks about the zero defects mentality um, in order to encourage initiative and boldness down at the lowest level. So the next page talks about the relationship between young Marines up to generals. It says from corporals to generals. I think it says corporals for a reason. That's the really the first leadership right. rank. Our conversation should be frank and open mm -hmm. and honest with each other. And, and then later in the paragraph, it says something really interesting. It says, the, the behavior of yes men in the pursuit of personal advance will not be tolerated. And that is so striking to me. The 
per, the behavior of yes men, yes people, yes men and women in the pursuit of personal advance should not be tolerated. Our conversation that's, Yeah, that's such strong language. It's so strong, but we do a lot of war games with uh, company commanders, battalion commanders, regimental commanders in the room. And what I'm seeing more and more is a lack of boldness and a lack of authenticity for the sake of being a yes person. Hmm. They don't really take a side or they're not open frank. We are not open and frank and honest because we're worried about disagreeing with hmm. higher ranks. It is the behavior. We are we behave, especially at the captain feel great and up and then like senior staff and seal level. We behave so much like yes people. Huh. For the sake of probably indirectly personal advancement. Like we don't want to rock the boat. We don't want to be a cow we don't want to be labeled a cowboy. Um LFP. This, this outspoken oh he's they're just bitter, they're just jaded or whatever. Um and it I mean it the paragraph says goes on to say some more. Like it while decisions are being developed, the decision hasn't been made yet. The code is still being developed or the policy is still being talked about. That's where we should be open and frank, it says. And the senior officers should listen have an open ear to everyone. And and then when the decision is made, then we all jump on board. That's commander's intent. And then we ruthlessly, with boldness and initiative, execute those orders. So it does make that differ, uh, this that differentiation, if you will. Because uh, we all know those, a lot of us, a lot of times when we disagree with something, we're just complaining the whole time, even as we're executing it. That is not what the philosophy talks about. It just talks about while they're being made, and then we all accept once the decision is made, then we all jump on it and, and execute like it's our own. So what's interesting is that you, you mentioned that atmosphere of openness and frankness and, and yeah. speaking truth to power uh, and kind of that open kimono thing, particularly in light of, of mistakes uh, or mishaps. The Marine Corps community as a whole needs to get better at it, at least in, in your opinion. And I think that that's probably a widely held belief. But I know that the ACE in particular, Marine Corps Aviation, their procedures with mishaps mirrors that almost exactly. Uh, I can't claim to be a member of the Marine Corps aviation community, but just talking to some of them, I know that if there is, if a pilot makes an error in the cockpit, even if it's not an error, just a mishap, right? Something goes wrong. It is that pilot's responsibility to make a, a presentation on it and brief the whole squadron on, hey, here's why this happened. I made a mistake, something messed up, and I am simply lucky that no one was hurt, no equipment yeah. was damaged. I think that's a probably a really readily accessible example of of how good learning can really occur, right? With that atmosphere, it takes a lot of humility. Yeah. Oh man, even just like imagining that. And I have never flown a multi-million dollar aircraft, but I can't imagine that that's a comfortable experience. Yeah. Uh, we definitely need to get a guest on to discuss. Hopefully, we can find one who's been through something like that to talk about that because that man, what a powerful learning experience, uh, especially when one pilot to another can understand exactly what, like, hey, I, I was, they can envision themselves in the cockpit. They can do all the things they were doing and see themselves so clearly there. What a really powerful tool for learning that would be. And then imagine a unit that, that, that had that atmosphere and culture. With Lance and Corporals that, and, and that, riflemen. And yeah. that boldness to, to, to be up front and frank and talk about it. Think about the, the lethality that could be gained for a unit that has that type of atmosphere. Yeah, wow. What that would do, the end state of that would just be trust. Everyone would trust each other a lot more, and trust, as warfighting says, uh, the philosophy says, 
when we all trust each other, tempo is raised. Absolutely. So then we just... It's almost paradoxical, outside. though, right? Because admitting to your errors, right. creating trust. Um, but yeah, I can see exactly how that would work, yeah. right? Like, pretending to be perfect in everything you do uh, is almost inherently a lie. Like, I, I know that that's not true of you. Right. Because it's not true of anyone. Yeah. It's um, like listening to politicians talk on either side <laughs> of the podium. Like right. We, we know they're just saying what... what they feel the audience wants to hear. Yeah. And we all have heard that in briefs. Like, yeah. That just briefs well. It raises comfort level, but it also degrades trust because it's not the truth. So why now? Why 2020 is the Marine Corps like re-examining maneuver warfare? Obviously, we are going to have an entire another episode on the Commandant's planning guidance, the reorganization of the Marine Corps. I mean, that is worth an hour-long conversation on its own. But... McTogg just stood up the Advanced Maneuver Warfare course. There's been significant changes to ITX uh, to introduce some free play stuff. Like, what is going on right now in the Marine Corps? Like, what are we doing? What caused this? I mean, that's... So the question is, are we reinvigorating maneuver warfare? That's the question we have to ask ourselves, and how. So, yes, we're doing the, the Maneuver Warfare exercise, MWX. So it has the name, but... So there's, there's different lenses you can look at that through. So the first one is, obviously, we're in now a great power conflict. Not conflict, but con there's contention. There's tension in the world between China, Russia, and us, but especially China and us. Because Russia, as we know, um, they, they, they have a lot of problems. Uh, but China is on the rise. So that, first and foremost, I think is the reason people are talking about Maneuver warfare again because we're not perhaps the favorites anymore. They so have, it put us back in the situation your parents found themselves in. Yes. Uh, however long ago, and Queen yes. Elizabeth found herself in. Mm -hmm. uh, interesting. Okay. A little bit, but there's a little bit more than that. And so yeah, so now we you know we we can we do this force on force to try and um, replicate a a peer adversary out in the training in the training grounds. Um, and so, and MCDP-1 talks a lot about the, the highest level form of training or learning is fighting against someone who is equal to you in systems and in personnel. So that, that's, there's so many layers of maneuver warfare. That's one of them. Uh, we have a lot more layers to get to, like, because you see in our assessments and in our debriefs, it's not brought up a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, we do not just, we do not bring up the lenses of maneuver warfare in our in our debriefs or in our discussions from what I'm aware of, what I've heard in the big theater debriefs, like questions or conversations about it enough, I think. So we have a ways to go, but it is, I, the force on force is so awesome in that it is causing a lot of us to go back and look at the philosophy again, because we're not, we're not the favorites. Something that stood out to me was Yet another quote from MCDP-1 uh, regarding training and force on force. Like, that is the highest form of training. Right. is force on force, unconstrained right. uh, free exercises. Play. Free play exercises. Uh, I, I'm sure I read that as a lieutenant, and I'm sure I read it every time, but it didn't stick out to me, I don't think, until MWX was really coming online, because it made me think, wow, why haven't we been doing this before? Right. The book says it's the highest form of training. And so, yeah, I, I think that, again... 
an entire another episode is needed to discuss the implications of force on force training and the experiences that MagTaf TC has had with it. Mm -hmm. But what a really powerful tool for learning that is. Yeah. As a final question, uh, talk about and the the blend of of art and science, right? That it, if it's a I don't know, do you see it as a, as a spectrum? Is it a, a pendulum that swings back and forth? Because to conduct maneuver warfare, a lot of people would say that's, that's art, right? And, and we need to get back to the lost art of maneuver warfare. But the science of war, I mean, is, is still important, right? Like, you have to know how far a mortar can shoot before you can worry about using it in a creative manner. What do you think that balance is? Are we there right now? Where do we need to go? Just what are your thoughts? Yeah, the, this is probably one of the most uh, contentious or just interesting conversations about the philosophy is mm -hmm. the balance between art and science. And so MCDP1 talks about the three aspects of war, art, science, and human will. Mm -hmm. um, so just looking at across history and what we're, what we're doing now, it really depends on what our mindset is at the time and, and how we're what we're doing at the time. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. It's 32 minutes into our very first episode, and we've already hit our first, it's situationally dependent answer. That determines the balance. So here's something I've been thinking about lately is um, in, a, in a war game or in a, in a TDG, tactical decision game, how do we how do we evaluate that through those lenses of art and science? So a lot of our assessments need need to reflect that. Like, hey, here's how you did with the science, here's the art, like what? how do you define that? Because it's really easy to throw out art and science, but what is the art of war? What is the science of war? So we, we need to define that. We need to come to a common understanding of that. Um, and, the, and MCDP1 talks about it a little bit, but not in great detail. Like, for the art, it's creativity and imagination, mm -hmm. elements of surprise, uh, deception, ambiguity, those type things um, are to me are what the art of war is. Um, but obviously, if you are not proficient in the science leading in, in the execution of, of the art, then you're gonna struggle a lot. If you're having mortar incidents, you can't get your mortars on target, uh, you cannot execute close air support, so the combined arms aspect. Right. Um, if you're not proficient with offset of support by fire, it doesn't matter how, how great your your um, deception plan or your ambiguity plan is, um, how much you orient on the adversary. So, but if we just bring that up in our training, in our in our strategies, in our plans, hey, this is where we this is what we need to focus on with the science of war and define it. Here's what we need to focus on with the art and define it it'll really help our guys rather than just throwing out the art and science for because then that that's up for interpretation mm -hmm. we're going to waste a lot of time figuring uh, out what we yeah need. debating back and forth uh where, where it should go yeah top you got anything else no i don't i think what, what better way to uh end this conversation than than with that right there yeah the, absolutely the, the contention and the discussion of you know the art and science of war and uh, in regards to how it applies to the warfare. So yeah, that's good. absolutely. Well, thank you so much for, for being willing to talk to us for a little while. I really appreciate it. I know you've got a, a busy schedule, not only uh, because we're, we're setting up for another Amwick here in a couple weeks, but uh, because I happen to work pretty close to your office, so I know how often you are busy in there. Uh, so thanks again for taking time out to talk to us.
uh, and thanks for all your thoughts. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, so hold on. So you're saying, what, what, what was that example you had on Maneuver Warfare? Yeah, so I, um, I, at first I was glad it didn't come up. Um, but so like a non-military example of a practitioner of maneuver warfare, politics, pop culture, my answer was Kim Kardashian. Um, think about a person who started at the bottom of the totem pole. Like first she was only known for a sex tape and because her dad was OJ Simpson's lawyer. Yeah. She started with just that, like, okay, they know my name. She started with that advantage. And then a TV And now the show. entire Kardashian clan. Now is... she is a tier one celebrity. She goes to the Met Gala every single year. She's married to Kanye West, who just hit the billion dollar profit. You have very weird measures for success, but okay. I mean, hey, it's all it's always oriented on the well, situation, right? She yeah. She went. She in interviews that I've watched of her, she she was early in her career. Um, journalists would ask her, hey, so what are your goals or whatever? This is like early 2000s when she was just still up and coming. And she was like, well, I love fashion. I want to be involved in that. I want to be on the cover of Vogue magazine. I want to be on the cover of Cosmopolitan. I want to be on the cover of et cetera. And they laughed at her. There's, I remember uh, a journalist saying, laughing and saying, honey, you will never be on the cover of those. And I literally have pictures of, because I kind of follow her her career she's been on the cover of Forbes Vogue multiple times Cosmopolitan multiple times hmm. um, these tier one magazines that people laughed her out of the room for because and she just she did it all indirectly based on a uh, little-known TV show her the first episode of keeping up with the Kardashians was filmed on a camera bought at um, home D or uh, Best Buy they went out and bought the camera and filmed the first episode. That was the pilot. They started with just that, hmm. and now she is a hundred million, multiple million dollar, oh, yeah. and influences fashion and is married to Kanye West. Like talk about maneuvers. So you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> if you want to learn to fight wars like Queen Elizabeth, Kim Kardashian, and Major Jones's parents, come on down to McTaw, and we'll teach you how to be a maneuverist. It's pretty amazing. 